So for most of us, today was, and I've been in too many cities, so I apologize, December 7th, a day that lives in infamy. But for many, many Jews, today was Rosh Hashanah. That's how they refer to it. The Rosh Hashanah. I'm sorry? It says Kislev. And it's seen as the day that was the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus. Because in 1798, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, was imprisoned by the students of the Vilna Gaon, who cooked up a conspiracy that he was committing treason because he was basically saying Stakamani from Russia to Jews in Palestine. Palestine being under the dominion of the Turks and Russia being the sworn enemy, so they cooked up charges of treason. He was in jail for 51, 53 days, it's not clear. And Hasidim saw this as a trial in heaven as to whether God wanted Hasidus to entrench itself in the Jewish experience in the Jewish population. It's called the Hebrew Kitruk, that they were being prosecuted in Shemayim. And the liberation happened in Yutes Kislev, an emancipation from jail, ironically, 29th of November. So that's an interesting coincidence, November 29th, 1798. And Hasidim see this, not just Lubavitch Hasidim, but all Hasidim see this as the final affirmation in heaven that Hasidus should take root and impact Jewish history and Jewish evolution. I think for most of us in this room, that whole world seems very foreign, at best, peculiar, odd, incomprehensible. And I want to take the opportunity this evening, on the night after so many Hasidim around the world have celebrated their Rosh Hashanah, try to give you a taste of a very deep pool of ideas. Our eyes immediately rivet upon the furry hats and the long black frocks and the mikvah dipping and the tuna fish touching and somehow it's evolved into a way that we find very abrasive and very uh, disorienting. It's a very deep reservoir of ideas and particularly be shocked to discover how relevant these ideas are for a national religious community and a Zionist community which we belong to. So tonight's lecture is an attempt to pull up two. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you. I think I'll take just a moment to hand out cheese. Is an attempt to, on the one end, provide a taster and exposure to the world of Hasidus for non Hasidim. It's deeply influenced my life. I mean, it appears a Hasidim, but I think about it often. And I shape my identity based on some very deep ideas which it introduced. I think that it redeemed Jewry in very dramatic fashion. And in particular, to sketch the relevance, I think I need one to say, to sketch the relevance of Hasidus, sketch the relevance of Hasidus to Zionism and the national religious community. Okay, so let's take a second so everyone has their sheets. Okay. Um, I want to discuss three primary points this evening. The first being the manner in which Hasidus revitalized, rejuvenated, and also transformed and revised redemptive consciousness. Redemptive consciousness is latent and primary to all Jewish religious identity. One of the four questions will all be asked when we ascend to heaven. The Gemara says in Brachos, when a person ascends to heaven, these are the questions. This is the final exam. You pass it, you pass through, you fail it, who knows. Final exam, were you ethical? Basis of all religious identity is common decency, honesty, candor. Second question, did you invest in your family, a Sakta of not just bearing children, but nurturing them, investing in them, cultivating? Third question, did you commit time for Torah study, Kabbalah, and Matara? 
the fourth question is, and I'll paraphrase, and then I'll I'll articulate the Gemara's concept. Did you accept your reality as the perfect reality, or did you live a schizophrenic life? Every Jew has to be a schizophrenic. Living in Camp Mill, a beautiful life, comfortable, professional. You want to change your world. You embrace your world. Jews aren't escapists. We don't flee from reality. But this is not a reality. A reality in our narrative exists elsewhere, in a different plane, in a different meadow, in a different land, in a different hemisphere. So Jew has to live with that almost dichotomous sense of embracing his reality, but anticipating not just a geographical relocation, but a complete alteration of history. To say bluntly, we pray for a day in which democracy will be replaced by monarchy, where we will wear tefillin all day, and we'll slit the throats of bulls in the temple. That's a vastly different world than the one we inhabit. And even if you round off the edges and you emulsify, the mayor may not be Corbanos, it's clear that the world that we pray for three times a day will be vastly, vastly different than the world we currently inhabit. So it's best to live with that almost bifurcated identity. Again, we're escapists. We don't flee from our reality. We embrace it. We redeem it. We enhance it. We advance it. But we also dream of a different reality. And that phrase entails the final challenge of Kodesh Baruch will demand of you to be solution. Did you embrace and accept and concede your reality as the perfect and only one, or did you anticipate a different, a redemptive era? So redemptive consciousness is in no way, shape, or form an innovation of Hasidus. But for most of history, most of exilic history, redemptive consciousness was essentially articulated in two forms. First of all, religious observance. Very often people ask the very elusive phrase, you know when Rishit Zmichakulatenu began? The moment the last Jew left Yerushalayim during the destruction of the Mikdash and performed the first mitzvah. The moment the Chorban ended and this long odyssey of return began, every Tfilin, every Tehillim, every Mikvah, every Mitzvah, every Matzah, it's an aggregate leading towards redemption. We believe that 1948 was a quantum leap forward. So the graph, jagged. And those who don't see this as a divine tradition view the graph as continuous. Another mitzvah, another mafkimara, another chaset. So, ritual, fidelity, faith contributes to redemption. And of course, redemptive imagination. The world may seem dark, conditions of futility, frustration, but I believe that Hashem will intercede and refashion the landscape of the world. So that was redemptive consciousness. Chasidus is based on Kabbalah. And I'll try as best I can to try to articulate it's not a sheer about Kabbalah. It's an attempt to refashion Kabbalah for the commoner, which is a very, very ambitious project. But Kabbalah is much more activist in its redemptive stance, even before Hasidus. So, for example, the Kabbalim would get up at midnight, every night, and for them it really was getting up. And when I say get up at midnight, you say at the next hour. They went to sleep at five in the afternoon when it got dark. Their whole time was shifted. They had electricity. They were awakened at midnight to mourn for the destruction of the Nehemikdash and to recite certain passages known as Tikkun Chatzos. Tikkun Chatzos is a Kabbalistic manner of activating. It doesn't cast man as an active author of redemption, but certainly it advances the agenda. It introduces prayers that are laser targeted for redemption rather than incorporating redemption into the overall litany manual health and benefits and bracha and that's right. It's not one of 19, but it's a laser targeted zero for redemption. 
Chasiris adopts and adapts Nesach Svar, which is swaps in Nesach Svar for Nesach Ashkenaz. If you have a careful eye, Nesach Svar is a very, very redemptive liturgy. Yiskadav Yiskadash Shemerabah, B'yamad Yibrach Ruzei, G'armich Machuzei, we await Hashem's kingdom. But Svar as the Yatzmach Porkarnei, the Yitarei Ketz Meshichei. The redemption should be advanced and the end of time should be accelerated. Or, Ugeleinu Gula Shlema Meira Laman Shemecha, as in addition to the Bracha Rei, Rebi Anyenu Bivarivenu, Ugeleinu Gula, or, as Semach David Avdacha Meira Satsmiach, the Karmel Karmel Mishuasacha, we wait for the coming of Mashiach. Kili Shuascha Kivinu Kalayom, we wait, but Nesach Svar doesn't just wait. Who down is Nesach Svar? Kili Shuascha Kivinu Kalayom, we really wait. The double waiting to be Yeshua. So the adaptation on this far by Hasidus is an attempt to advance through classic, classic techniques and conventions through those classic slight alterations to do. But far beyond that, Hasidus casts men as an active participant in the redemptive narrative, in the redemptive trajectory. And there's a lot of irony here, and I hope to tease out some of the ironies. It's a very, very complex issue. But the Baal Shem Tov, early 18th century, um, Polish, Ukrainian founder of Chosidus, attempts to migrate, attempts to pilgrimage there at Israel. He gets stuck in Constantinople, and in Chosidus, it's more vital that you don't make it than you actually arrive in Israel because that lends drama to the process. And if, you, if you're caught in the process and if you don't like the Shabbat choreographing is honestly has other functions in mind and you haven't arrived yet in Israel. And so this is Prime Talmud, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Polnoy, but many of their Kamim, lesser known figures, ultimately travel to Israel in the 18th century. Very few Ashkenazi Jews inhabit Israel. Remember, Jews pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the early part of the 18th century. There was a catastrophe. They were expelled from Jerusalem. You weren't allowed to live in Jerusalem as an Ashkenazi Jew until the early part of the 19th century. You had to dress up as a Sephardic Jew because the Ashkenazi community was in deep debt and they were condemned. There was an APB out for an Ashkenazi Jew. So these were students who were pilgrimaging with tremendous support and love and encouragement. And then, of course, famously, 1777 was really First Aliyah. 1776 is an important day. 1777 is really the first Aliyah. 300 students, who was then the leading Hasidic rabbi, he relocates with 300 of his followers. I say followers, because not all of them were Hasidic. 100 people joined the ranks, became a motley crew, but certainly the energy, the, the thrust was a Hasidic energy to move to Eretz <laughs> And then it happened to the North. Again, they're not welcome in Jerusalem. Keep in mind, no Ashkenazic Jews are yet welcome in Yishalayim. Well, this is the first mass pilgrimage, the first Aliyah, the first Zionist movement. And this is part of Hasidus casting man, not just as a forbearing, expecting, anticipating recipient and beneficiary of redemption, but an active author of redemption. Not just but ultimately taking an active role. And I want to start by reading a very, very Zionistically sound Zionism. I'll try to describe a very, very interesting and intriguing relationship between Zionism and Hasidus. 
But in source number, um, I hope it's here, yeah, source number two, the Sasanus describes the base of Purim. So let's uh, fast forward beyond Hanukkah. But he describes the historical function of Purim. Hayahachana Labayashani. Remember, Purim occurs during that gap. It's not a gap, it's a seven year exile in Babel. But it's an 18 year gap between when the Mikdash was launched. But its reconstruction was halted and then it was continued 18 or 12 years later. So sometimes occurs. The project of rejuvenation has begun, but it's been halted in part by anti Semitic opponents who opposed Jewish settlement in Israel. Sound familiar? So it's been halted and has to be relaunched, and he sees legitimately Purim as providing the moral energy to restart that process. Purim provides this extra strength. They achieve moral pride or national energy. Okay, that's a classic historical read of Purim. But now his comments are, it's prophetic, it's possible. One day, it's entirely feasible that we'll once again experience a pre-redemptive miracle. That's a great way to phrase Medina's Yisrael. Is this redemptive? Of course not. We're not at our final destination. It's not only pre-redemptive or contributing, again, it's semantic, but it's providing the type of energy that's led to national rejuvenation, geographic re-landscaping, mass migration. We feel like the rules of history are once again hurling forward because of the energy provided in 48 and 67. Thank God we're witnessing hopefully what seem to be advances on many fronts. So Hasidus has a very endorsing and supportive role of casting man as contributor to redemption in the classic sense of Kabbalah. But because it draws from Kabbalah, it creates many divergencies or discrepancies between the way we define activist redemption and the way Hasidus defines activist redemption. And that takes a bit of a few steps back about how Kabbalah views our world and, by extension, views redemption. In our world, redemption is a response to fiasco and failure. The Jews were intended to inhabit a land, achieve a certain spiritual experience, and our moral religious betrayal led to our expulsion, desecration of our land, exile. Essentially, redemption is either a rehabilitation of national decline, or quite possibly, in, in a larger sense, as uh, would always quote, I forget what he said, dancing Adam's, treading Adam's dance backward into Ganeidan. Adam fell from Ganeidan, so it's not just a response to our national failure, but to man's moral failure at the dawn of history. So we're redeeming not just our own experience, but we're redeeming all of human welfare. Of course, the overlap between the two is the overlap between our universalist tendencies and our nationalist tendencies in Judaism, which of course is all in the share. But in Kabbalah, there's a larger narrative at play. And the larger narrative stems from the great dilemma of our, of, our, of our existence. How does an infinite God, who's indescribable, who's unified in a way that's indivisible, everything in our world that's divisible, is shared protons and subatomic particles. And everything we know is divisible, but God is, God is one. God is a unity. How does that unity transform into multiplicity? How do we, we're all different. We're composed of cells. We're composed of subconscious. How does unity create division? 
And of course, people didn't grasp that for 2,000 years, hence they assumed pagans had tendencies. And what was divided them was multiple forces, multiple, multiple theories. So we, we, we pretty much dodged the question. We, we don't delve into that question. It remains a great mystery. But Kabbalah tries to tackle that question. The question of translating infinity and indivisibility into finitude and divisive or divided reality. And that's the lattice of layers called spheros. Those of you who've been somewhat exposed to Kabbalah. Somehow there's there's like a cascading level. Each level God's infinity becomes a little more finite and God's unity becomes a little bit less unified and finally trickles down. That's like a quick primer for non-Kabbalists. And creation was occasioned by a great failure because God attempted to pour all of his essence into this world. The world could have contained it. The world was just not capable of containing it. That fail, that, as we call fail, malfunction, is not in Kabbalah, the receptors meant to absorb God's presence erupted through their inability to contain and God's presence became scattered. And man's challenge in this world is to collect God's divided presence and create you. And that's the larger cosmological redemptive challenge. Not just to restore our homelands, rebuild the base on the cluster, restore our moral authority, but create unity that reflects God. So just, just as a throwaway, our senses are divided. We hear and smell and see and touch in ways that in no way are integrated. I can hear without touching. And even if I'm hearing and touching, they're separate experiences. But in our Sinai, when we achieve a meta-historical level of interaction, there was a fusion of senses. And we saw lightning. And we saw thunder. At some point, our senses will all merge into a way that's more reflective of a divine experience. So that's just something very palpable for us to literally latch onto in terms of trying to understand this. So, getting back to our, our discussion of redemption, for, for a chassid who is operating under the terms of Kabbalah, redemption is in no way limited to geography. So, for example, we all laugh at a chassid who davened chakras at 12 in the afternoon. But if you ask that chassid, why are you davening at 12 in the afternoon, he would say, because it's 12 o'clock in Solar Spring. But I'm not davening in Solar Spring. I'm davening in the cosmos. In the cosmos, time is relevant. So in his mind, his prayers inhabit a very different realm. He's engaged in a very different realm of experience. Our response would be, that's antinomian, because Allah has to be adhered to. But it's, it's a debate. It's not, it's not a one-sided conversation. There's substance to this question, and it's a legitimate question. We don't understand most of us in themselves today. Don't, don't engage in that as well, but... So once redemption becomes cosmological, so on the one hand, it isn't limited to the land of Israel or even to the restoration of history. And, for example, um, well, let me just, I quoted a few quotes to try to demonstrate this redemptive interest. Source number one. The purpose of our, the purpose of our Religious experience, source number one, the Nomad and Malachi probably wrote the Bible of Hasidus. This is the third generation of the Malachi Lazans. The original Hasidish Rebbeim, they roamed the countryside, they wrote amulets, they provided healing, they were inspirational. They didn't write. 
So this is the first person, but well, one did, but he wrote in such an esoteric fashion, it's almost impossible to understand unless you are really versed in Kabbalah. Yaakov Yosef, the told us, I own it, but I, I read two lines and I'm done. In Ramadan of Luzansk, writes an easier, basically, Hasidus Kedami. It's not really, but it's a primer of Hasidus. It's an entry of Hasidus. People visit his grave in Luzansk. To integrate the entire, in fact, many of you are engaged in cosmological fusion without even knowing it. Because many people unconsciously or without involuntarily open their sitter during Sphira, which is the high watermark for cosmological activity because it's the seven of seven lattice. So during Sphira, many people introduce their Sphira, Lashem Yichud Kutcha Brechosh I don't, because that's a Hasidic infiltration. <coughs> Someone made his way into the Sidurim. Hasidim would recite that before a mitzvah. This mitzvah was intended to create integration in the God's world. And then you know, you hear that famously at the beginning of the old 19th century, Dan will change you what he refused to allow it because he saw this as a... So, the goal of Hasidus is to... That's right. The goal of Hasidus is to introduce this type of integration and... It extends, of course, far beyond geography. And, here's the irony, in some ways, geography limits this cosmological agenda. Because if God's presence is scattered across the entire universe, let alone the entire planet, so congregating in Israel may not be the best strategy to collecting God's presence. And hence, Gullus may not be punishment, punishment, maybe not opportunity. Very provocative. So to see the level of provocation, so it's not a few spasamas of our polyamorous most famous Hasidic works, middle nineteenth century. This were called horror for me. Golos is not a punishment, but it's, it's not incidental. Or source number four. And Hasidus, again, something that people don't understand. Hasidus as Kabbalah is very engaged in letter manipulation in ways that to us seem very frivolous and very artificial, but there's a science to it. So we laugh at their gematria, but letters, first of all, letters represent the perfect model of fusion, the way that fonts or the way that those parts of letters join to create full letters and letters create words and letters create sentences. So there's a fusion effect is symbolized by the conjugation of letters into words and words into sentences. And... Lachain, source number four, the Sfas Emes, Shoresh Shein Galos, the word Galos is a derivative of his Galos, of Revelation. Mm-hmm. Now, if there are any etymologists or grammarians say that's not true, the way we read, and those who have studied Diktuk, and again, we're, we're no longer deeply engaged in the world of Diktuk, if you try to back 800 years, that's all we're made of That's the big fight for that Diktuk. Generally, Hebrew words are based on three letters. Gullus and are in no way. There's a very, very different scheme in Hasidus. Haro, Oref, so Haro becomes a neck. And so it's a whole different system. It's like Euclidean, Euclidean geometry. Just the rules are different. So Gullus is an exile. Gullus is, first of all, the, the rolling in <coughs> history, like Galvedal, Galut. So these are some very interesting inversions of Gerula, even though they activate and empower the anti-part of Gerula. And I mentioned before, 
it extends far, far beyond geographic limitation, force five, nominal enough again. Moshe's addressing the Jewish people on the eve of his death. He's not in Israel. It's like he's in Israel. He's so close to Akash Baruch Hu. As if he's in the land of Israel. So Moshe becomes the poster boy for Gula, president of Israel. And therefore, you don't have to be in Israel to achieve Gula. So there's that element that geography can diminish or in some way inhibit this cosmological agenda. And then something else happens. And this is what makes Hasidus so modern. This is actually what my thesis is about when I wrote Masters. It's not just. Yeah, remember, for us, it's geographical and national and historical. Jewish people returning to their homeland, restoring moral welfare for humankind. And Kabbalah elevates it or inflates it to a cosmological level. And then Hasidus, and certain modern forms of Hasidus, start to internalize it. So redemption is no longer external to land, people, history, or cosmology. It's about self-redemption and redeeming the self. And that's really where Chabad takes over. Chabad establishes a very, very complex correspondence between it's, it's very deacon, it's very deconstructed of human identity. Chabad layers intellect, layers human consciousness and identity in ways that are very pre-modern, very, very advanced. And each element of the human identity corresponds to a different cosmological sphere and by perfecting, understanding, developing Perfecting. I've heard you speak with a father of a chayal, Shevat and Kamal. Right? Baruch Hashem, this is a price of me. He said, I was so proud of What's closer to that? So many parents of chayal in here. Let's take a moment to appreciate it. I got two. I don't know you. Especially this time of year. This time of year, throughout history, Jews were bunkering down, waiting for the programs to begin at Christmas time. And then waiting for two, three weeks, and here we are defending our country, defending ourselves. Yes, Trump, no Trump. Anyway, so there's an internalization of the redemptive process. So, for example, if you take a look at the Morinayim, Morinayim. It's the 18th century, Western than I tried to, I think I, I know what I going to say. I included some biography on page two. The biography is just, uh, just taken from the Barilam, because most people are familiar with the history and the basic timeline. So, Marinayim, source number six, quotes the Balshemtov, and much of our Balshemtov information is from students. Kimamara Balshemtov, Shetzarach Kolachat Misrael, Letakin Ulahachin Chelek Komas Mashiach. To rebuild Mashiach, Hashayach Lenish Masech. You can't get more internal than that. It's in Mashiach within you, not the Mashiach of history, land, people, or even the Mashiach of a shattered cosmos. So, on the one hand, intellectually, Hasidos takes redemption and recasts it and reformulates it in ways that are somewhat not just different and incongruous, but in some cases antithetical to the way we define redemption. And then what happens, why well, it's, so, it's so odd for you to assume affiliation between Hasidus and Zionism, is Hasidus is very supportive. I would say that there are three periods in the timeline of Hasidus' relationship with Zionism. That's how I would say. In the early 
and in the 18th century and early 19th century, strong support. People are moving. Monies are being transferred. Full enthusiasm. In the late 19th century, when it starts to go secular, and I said probably four periods, and it starts to go secular, it starts to become a movement that's secular, and all these secular movements are ravaging the Jewish community. And there are halachic issues that start to be ordinary, like Shemitah, and it's clear that halachic concessions are necessary in order to sustain Jewish people in the homeland. So they're like pullback. Secular, we have to compromise on Kashras, Shabbos issues. And then, of course, once it becomes really institutionalized, well, Zionist Congress, then much of Hasidus, along with the Haredi world, starts to get that allergy, take a few steps back. And then the final salvo for one branch of Hasidus is the Holocaust, which in Satmar represents that punishment for Zionism. But that's not representative of Hasidus in general. That's just one branch of Hasidus. And then it goes nuclear. We like Seger, Moshe, and essentially we, our bodies are strewn across the fields of Europe based on the prophecy that in Shashirim, because we will advance Ula and, and promise something which we should be waiting for. But without getting into Satmar and Holocaust, it's the secularization and institutionalization of that secularization that ramps or moderates the appetite that Hasidus has for redemption. But if you are an activist, redemptive person in the early 18th, mid 18th century, you're clearly a Hasid. It's clearly the Hasidus that's fanning the flames, moving people towards both consciousness, actual migration, and an awareness that history is now accelerating to its terminus and we can be authors and we can be framing those final chapters. And that's really the first overlap. I mean, this is, of course, our theory, our theory, our, our belief is that God expects redemption to be a partnership between the divine interjection, divine interjection, and human effort, and serving the army and building our state and returning our home. And this is really at, at the core of our belief system of, of Zionism and religious Zionism. And, and that was introduced about 150 years before Herzl. Not by Hasidus recasting Kabbalah in a modern context. And again, you have to appreciate the role of Hasidus in general, and in this aspect in particular, by the period it evolved in. I think one of the saddest periods in Jewish history was probably the late 17th century and early 18th century, post of atheism, Shabbat raised expectations, at least a third, possibly half of the Jewish population, sells off their possessions, pilgrimages to Israel, He's the fraud. He's proved to be a fraud. Mass dejection, internecine struggle, aftershocks, Frankist movements, witch hunts. The Chacham Tzvi is chasing down Yonis Chaimashitz. Chaos. We can withstand foreign foes. When you have a backbone, think of your own lives, right? Think of your own homes. When you have harmony and peace and you're getting along with your family and your spouse and everything, you're able to face the world. It's when internally you feel broken, and internally, then you, you can't even go to the supermarket. You get angry because they charge you five cents extra. So it's these periods when we struggle inside. Maybe I thought because there's a more fiber of it. And then unfortunately, the post Hanukkah period all disintegrated into chaos and civil war and hostility. And those are the really sad periods in Jewish history. It's a very sad periods of economic. Um, Economic depression across Eastern Europe, and the Jews suffered as always the bottom of the food chain. Um, the Jews had a para-governmental agency called the Arba, the Bad Arba Ratzos, that was dismantled. It was a very, very difficult period, and very dark, 
And Hasidus restored some of that optimism, and I'll discuss that in a little bit later. But it's a perfect vacuum in which to infuse redemptive excitement. Because we all believe that redemption will be preceded by some, at least if we're not, we don't merit an easier route to redemption, it'll probably be preceded by some chaotic or, um, or um, challenging journey. So that's the first. The second point of overlap between Hasidus and modern Zionism is the role of the other and the role of the folk. Ideally, Jews are men to maintain their faith, adhere to all the mitzvahs, practice religion, the whole nine yards. Baruch everyone in this room, before you. How do you treat people who have fallen off the grid? People who are failures. People who are not in any way, shape, or form defined in others. Of course, someone forgets to fill in the misses, you're compartment. But somehow, religious malfunction, religious failure. So the classic approach is, of course, sustain, contempt, exclusion, rebuke, extending a hand to, to, towards return and shuva. But essentially, the other, the capital of Essentially, there's an attitude in the sense of exclusion. That's a fallen, that's a traitor, defector, failure. We'll try our best to reclaim and rehabilitate. Hasidus introduces a very, very audacious notion of inclusion. Every Jew has a deep-seated, inalienable piece, an element of a Any failure, no matter how dramatic, no matter how comprehensive, it's just extrinsic. It's not internal. It's not reflective. It's incidental. That person is still a Jew. That person is still included. Ideas which sound very familiar to us, but this is very, very innovative for the 18th century. Excuse me. So in honor of Yutas Kisle, let's at least read part of the Tanya. I think it's referred to as Tanya because that's the first word that we say about Tanya. First of Babaji Rebbe, middle of the 18th century. Probably the most famous, famous phrase of the entire time, time source number seven, describing the difference between a higher and higher but a higher plane of identity that a Jew possesses. We all believe that if God infused us with divine elements, divine spirit, divine reflection, and so on the kin. But for the Tanya it's more. Nefesh Hashemis be Yisrael. Here it is. Even if you're not a Chassid, here's your chance. You know, the four most famous lines in all of Chassidus. I should say a little differently. If you really want to get into the club, when you come to the Tish, don't say, I'm here to study Chassidut. So, oh yeah, here's the Mizrachim coming on the field for to look at the animals in the cage. Don't say that way. Or I want to study Hasidus, even that. The real insiders, if you really want in, you say, I'm here to study, you gotta swallow the Ches. You gotta study Hasidus. That's right, Hasidus. And the Ches and the emerge, then the doors fling open, <laughs> and you're sitting, it's like open sesame, and you're sitting right up front, front row seat, as if you're watching the Wizards, you know, front row seat, you know. <laughs> and Hasidus, you're in. If that fails, then just go and say the following forward. Every yid has a, you guys say the following way. You have to say it, pause, again, make a fist. Nefesh eloka mimal mash. 
Okay, that's the word mamish separately. I've heard real mamish, and they're very mocked on this. Hashem implanted a part of his essence in each and every Jew. Now, let's ignore the universalist issues right now. Based on Sukkim Vayipah Be'apah Nishmas Chayim, which ironically say that I'm not about Jews, but that's an interesting adaptation. Vayipah, everyone's still looking, maybe you won't hear it otherwise. When I speak to you, there's a level of communication and interaction. But there's a level of interaction that's deeper than speech. You ready? I brush my teeth. <laughs> that's a conveyance that's even deeper. Breath, lungs. God and once God breathes into, in this case, Jews, that's it. That can't become punished. That can't become altered. And any sin, as traumatic and as flagrant and as criminal as it may seem, it's not just external. It's not just the shell. Source number eight, the shame is moral. 19th century. Etzem means inherently, intrinsically. It's just casual, incidental, strange, not integrated. Comparison, the Mazda Dome, the one in the creek from the bottom, source line. A gem falls into the sand and gets soil. Has the gem been altered? Has its luster been affected? Just kind of messy there. Now, you don't see this. This is a major, major tragedy in my mind. Because when I say the word chasidus, chasidus, you think exclusion, insularity. That's all post-Holocaust. That's all in response to the manner in which chasidus suffered disproportionately than the Holocaust. However we suffered, they suffered disproportionately. Mm -hmm. And it was a recoiling and a retraction it's a combination of the accelerating world of my diary, especially the assault of the Hasidic world, and of course, Nazism. There was a merging of two foes into this great O, the other, and the other became very dangerous and threatening. And in response, it's put all in the fur hats, the struggle, retreat into our world, rebuild our people. Everything external to our world is threatened. That's not Hasidism. Or that's post-Holocaust. That's not the DNA of Hasidus. The only branch of Hasidus you still sense is in the Tzvus Chabad. But that's reflected in the characteristic of all Hasidus. It's just Chabad has been able, because of their leadership, and this took a greater level of the last effect a little more easterly. Most of Hasidus was pitched in Romania, Poland, then more in Ukraine, closer to Russia, and of course the leadership of the Rebbe. Uh, not just the Rebbe, their, their entire leadership procession is much more continuous and much more robust. When Rav Amitav formed the yeshiva, so many people in this room have been part of or identified it, but it was 49 years ago. It's an incredible question. It's an incredible story. We can launch our Rizamitav yeshiva, don't worry, that don't worry, we launch our 49. 50th, you know, Jewish institutions, 50 years, 55 years. So. We're starting our 50th year celebration. We'll see you in 2022 when we can 
So we're starting at 50. I'm sure they'll come here at some point. Don't worry. You guys don't know that. So we're starting at 50 in the celebration. That's all these incredible stories about how when we started Yeshiva and all the rabbis and the tip mayor were telling the boys, don't attend the Yeshiva, go to the regular Yeshiva, it's part of this. Everyone knew that the two top boys, and those two top boys would come to the Yeshiva, and everyone would follow. Who were the two top boys? Yaakov Maidan and Elio Blumenzai. Yaakov Maidan is the Yeshiva. Of course, Elio Blumenzai is the Yeshiva. Yuchan, another leading as the Yeshiva. Those were the two. Two boys that were targeting that you're in the recruitment mission. They had it for sure. Anyway, so the students asked around me time in a parlor meeting, why should we come to your yeshiva? What makes your yeshiva different than some of the yeshivas? So Rami told me the following story that to me always reflected his why people refer to him as a chassid, how I think he, his vision of yeshiva was, what I as a second generation teacher tried to maintain within this yeshiva. So he goes to the chassid that gets caught stealing. And they throw him into jail. And they call the Rebbe. The Rebbe comes to the jail cell, comforts him, takes him out, does him out. A few weeks later, same chassid, chronic, caught once again stealing, falls into jail, called the Rebbe, the Rebbe comes in. Okay, I have my own chronic failures. I'm also a flawed person. It's not a jail. A few weeks later, same wretched chassid, hand him the cookie jar, toss him into the stone jail, called the Rebbe, the Rebbe comes in. Okay, so you're a kleptomaniac. I'm also a <laughs> One after another after another. Finally, the Rebbe dies. A few months after the Leviathan, same chassid, gets caught. Tells him in the jail, call the Rebbe. Rebbe's shining. Shining another world. Okay, call the son, the successor. The son comes in, lambasting, you Russia, how dare you betray my father's faith and loyalty. This is how you pay him. You're an insult and a indignity to his memory. Run in jail for a couple of days. And think about the evil crimes you committed. And then maybe I'll bail you out. Chassid starts bawling. He says, don't understand. Don't understand. I'm a Ghanav. I'm in Russia. I'm not in Saudi. I'm in Russia. He says, you, you're a good ready for Sadiqin. But I'm not in Saudi. I'm a Russia. And your father. He was a record for a Shayim. I need your father. So now he slammed his fist of a devil and said, there are plenty of yeshivas for Sadiqin. I'm going to open up a yeshiva for a shayim. <laughs> <laughs> and the point I think is, I never talked about it with him, I think internally. We create these false categories of tzaddikim and shayim. Mm-hmm. And we only rule tzaddikim sometimes, and the shayim the other time. And it's a part of it, it's not Russia. We start creating these very artificial, quite frankly, not just definitions and and how do you create a yeshiva that can train and teacher a great Tamil and also just include people who are just trying as hard as they can to serve a Kurdish Baruch who may not be the sharpest pencil in the drawer, may not be able to. That's going to be a limit, but to a degree, that's how I see it in my yeshiva in some ways, being a product of the yeshiva world, or with the, the life of birds, California yeshiva world is as an exclusion. If you're in, if you're not in, you're out. If you're out, there's no place for you. And that's led to great success. I mean, I know I'm impugning it, but it's just as a different approach with one machine. And that's the legacy of Chassidus, to create inclusion, to create roles, to carve out roles for Jews who are fallen off of the religious highway, but they're still part of Is that familiar to anyone? Roles for Jews 
and no longer religious. <coughs> well, six years ago, I was invited to South Africa to speak at an incredible gathering. It was called the Sinai and Daba. Evidently, in South Africa, in, in Swahili or Afrikaan or in Daba, it's like Daba. It means gathering. So they had Sinai and Daba, and 2,000 people gathered for a three or four day kind of study. So at one point there was a panel between myself and Jonathan Rosenblum, who was a correspondent for the Jerusalem Post. And he was meant to represent the Haredi perspective, and I was meant to represent the national religious. And the moderator was um, the chief rabbi, Warren Goldstein. Warren Goldstein. So I forgot who spoke first, but I think Jonathan spoke first, and he praised the national religious world for ten minutes. Then I spoke, and I praised the Haredi world for ten minutes. And Goldstein said, we didn't fly to South Africa for a love fest. <laughs> start attacking, start fighting, start arguing. Well, of course, we didn't take the bait. And he articulated the Haredi position. I'll just paraphrase from my memory. Obviously, I can't do it justice, but 1,800, every Jew is classically orthodox. 2,000, only a fraction. What has supplanted religion in the minds and imaginations of most Jews? Secular nationalists. Anything which replaces religion is... Idolatrous. And therefore, unholy, you can't be divine. More or less. It's a pretty straight logic. My response was in my opinion, religion was under siege in the 19th century independent of any Zionist movement. All of organized religion collapsed the age of reason, the Renaissance, modern era, Darwinism, not just that 100 year period, but think of history in 40 years. Renaissance, the age of ration. People look back at a thousand years of feudalism, suffering, religion as primary culprit, death, associated with the church, associated with religion. Basically, religion is not, it's not a very popular century for organized religion in the 19th century. And as religion collapses, people's identities are shifting, and that's why it's the century of ideologies. All these ideologies are emerging to try to replace religion and capture the imagination. Associated with capitalism and Marxism and communism and socialism and totalitarianism and Darwinism. How do we define ourselves? How do we define our identity? Who are we? Where do we come from? What are we pivoted upon? But what's the most powerfulism in that century? It's nationalism, of course. So in the 14th century, or the 17th century, you introduce yourself and then, hi, my name is John, and I'm a Protestant. Happy to live in London. Hi, my name is Francois. Um, a Catholic happened to live in France. But now, in 1850, the sequence is inverted. Hi, my name's Francois, I'm French. I happen to be Catholic, but my name is John, I'm Protestant, I happen to have it London. And these skirmishes start flaring. You define not just human imagination, but the classic boundaries in the age of monarchy. You redefine the boundaries of Europe based on newfound national identity. And of course, the rest of the great war, World War I, which is the war of national define ourselves based on nationhood, not based on monarchs affiliated with religion. So it's the age of nationalism that captures human imagination. The Judaism is under collapse, also we tend to glorify our past as if I, I, was, I was interviewing a student. Forget we are, but he asked me a question. He said, how do you justify the fact we're so fallen and our ancestors are so great and it's gotten the worst and everything he said? You're right, in some ways we're less than our ancestors, and you know what, in some ways we're better than our ancestors. And we sense a constant decline, and we're dwarfs, and we're nothing, and they're great. It's, it's wrong, it's a historical, uh, um, it's, it's historical forgery. 
fact that we're defending our land and we're and and, 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 and the way that we've rebuilt ourselves, rebuilt our patch yourself on the back. It's like don't always have to look at yourself as a midget. Because they were fallen people and the powerless and it's we glorify the yeshiva world, the great yeshiva world. You know how many boys there were in all the great yeshivas that all of our grandparents told us about? They all the yeshivas combined, they hated it. Pick 1920 as they hated it. Maybe 7,000. There are six and a half in the year alone. For every one boy who entered yeshiva, there were nine who walked the deck. Nine. Nine out of ten. What did they hate there? It's the very latest movement, the yeshiva movement. And millions of Jews were slated for starful working. And religion was in no way a matter of maintaining their interests. And in my opinion, God drew a card that he had developed with the door of history in his pocket. He created within the Jewish heart the ability to identify with land, people, and history, even independent of ritual. There's something in the Jewish heart that responds to our land, our history, and our peoplehood. Even when it doesn't respond to those books in the Sefer Torah and the Tefillin and the Mikvah, there's something deep. Who is the first, first Zionist, the first person to migrate to Israel? Obviously, trick question. I won't be asking. You would say Abraham, and you would be wrong because the first person to take his family and move to Israel is Terach. By Terach, Terach is Abraham Benel, is Lot Benachiyot, is Chalak Hashem, is Chosher Vayyevach. He doesn't just do drugs. He's a pusher. He sells them. He sells the idols. And he feels some joy in this land. Something about this land that draws him. This is godly. This is divine. That God creates within a Jewish heart. And in my opinion, secular therapy, secular Zionism is not a divine miscarriage. Or sorrowful miscarriage. It's a divine introduction to rescue millions of Jews from the star of Libya. And you've met those Jews, right? The taxi cab driver knows they're not better than another one. Better than another. Was a falafel salesman who has a picture of the Babacha Rebbe and the Baba Sali, and it's just, he's so Jewish. They're so Jewish. And you ask them, why do they serve in the army? Why do they kill themselves and sacrifice? And where do they get like, I know why Elon, I know why Jacob, I know why. I know why. Because it's part of our ideology and living prophecy, and we know the divine expectation, and it comes cloaked in religion for us. What about everyone else? What about the secular Jews? Why are they there? Why are they all selling creams and walls? Most of them are. Most of them are. Why are they still? Because there's something in their minds and in their hearts that. It's a really multi-layered question. I'm referring that 
I think the core of your question is not describing a secular Israeli, not necessarily a secular silver spring. Right? I think the nationalism is very much aligned with the among secular Jews, and you're commenting that maybe amongst youth on these shores, on these continents, without religion, somehow that national fervor is diminished. And also, and also that going on in college campus right now, nationalism is like in the past. Like the whole idea of Zionism as a movement that makes sense no longer makes sense right. if on college campus people are saying nationalism is anti, you know, we're it's bigoted, it's, it's modernism, right. there shouldn't be you know, countries that are for specific people. Yeah, the fascinating secular nature of conversation is, in a general sense, can postmodernism be reconciled with religion? Forget nationalism. A very interesting writer um, who passed away a few years ago, Shagar, and he has done some real groundbreaking work in this area. I think it's worthwhile to get some exposure to that. Uh, I don't think that I buy into the complete congruence between the two, but I feel like everything is a composite thing that of our responses and our, our thought processes to be a composite and family and culture. I think power will always be relevant, but its relevance has to be refreshed and adapted to, to the human imagination. But there's, there's no question. In a non-practical sense, in a historical sense, I feel that there's that religion is composed of three different layers. There's the ritual part, the national part that I'm describing, and then there's just there's a moral sensibility that Africa introduced in the entire world. And even those who fall off of the religious <coughs> scale and are normally engaged in the national identity, or if you'd like, think of a timeline between Tesvav, Nisan, Chafal, Nisan, Bab Sima, the peoplehood embracing God and the ritual. So it's a really relevant question. But assuming everyone in this room is ardently Zionistic and would like to see themselves in one way, shape, or other inhabiting Israel, however that's defined, and, and with, of course, the, the gradations. So that's really that second level of overlap where, and of course, the Yitzhakar Bardichev is lionized and, and encapsulated as the great defender of the Jewish people and the fallen. So he encounters a Jew when you Kippur eating ham. That, that was the way you came out of the closet in 1850. If you wanted to announce that you were an agnostic and make this, Yom Kippur was your day. So before, today was the Rosh Hashanah for Hasidim. Yom Kippur was the Rosh Hashanah for atheists. They prepared the ham sandwich, cut out the middle of the street, stand in the market square in Bremen or Hamna or whatever, making bracha bracha. Eat their ham sandwich. So the Yisrael approaches this, this atheist and he says, I'm pretty aware of some Kippur. Well, you must not know that it's ham, right? No, 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 this is uh, Oscar Mayer. Definitely ham sandwich. Well, you're probably sick, and the doctor told you that. You're going, Nefesh, there's no rabbi in the perfect health. And he's just waiting to be lambasted by the rabbi. The rabbi looks up at Hashem and says, Hirsh Barakal, Mi ka'amchul Yisrael. They're so averse to telling a lie that even when it's humiliating, they'll tell the truth. <laughs> That's the overlap, in a sense. And again, we take it for granted because our country can feel, as the North Israel, there's such a meaningful role for non-religious Jews. It's just so obvious to us. And Hasidus preempts this by 200 years. The third overlap which is probably the most fascinating. Our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is pivoted on two emotions. 
and with everything, being that we're different from him, so everything has to be multi-battery, paradoxical. That was one of the rocks. I don't think he ever articulated this, but having read his work, and it's at the core of the retroactive thing. Religion, meaning in our interface of the British Bible, the paradox is that it could be resolved. And it could be paradox reflects the fact that it's incompatible. So, my relationship with my wife is meant to be straight, direct, parody, and the same. And I like the Kaddish Baruch which is so different. There's not that one phase or modality that can capture it. It's going to across many different fronts, some of which conflict. And at the core of this paradox is, of course, Avadir. Ava does not mean we love him, it means we understand him, and we see the redemptive nature of religion, how he nobles our lives, the overlap between human interest and God's world, and therefore we love him because ultimately, and everyone in this room, we don't, most of us no longer love the physical parts of our lives, we love the parts of our lives that have helped us become better people. Right? So, most of us are advanced in our marriages and our relationships. We have, I didn't love Rav Lechensin because he tasted good, or because he was handsome. I love Rav Lechensin because of how he affected me, how he changed my life, and through our parents and our spouses and our relatives and our friends, the people who just enrich us as people and enrich our lives. So when we see religion that way, we understand our Kodesh Baruch Of course, we love that. Thank you, Kodesh Baruch for making me religious and choosing me. And Yira, we don't understand our Kodesh Baruch Hu. So Yira's not fear. Yira is accepting the mystery and submitting to the higher authority. So the high water moment of Yira Shemayim is Avram and Haramariah. You can't understand Hashem, nor should he understand Hashem. So finally, Hashem says, Ata Yadati Kira You've proven that you can worship me when you understand me, and that's been your whole credo, is union between human prosperity and monotheism. Now, the final lesson is, can you worship me when you don't understand me? And it's a very, very delicate calibration between understanding and withdrawing, uncovering and discovering more mystery, and somehow every human being pitches their relationship with the French Barclay both religiously, emotionally, historically, all method. What happens to that very, very calibrated balance after 1,700 years of absolute horrific exile? When Jews are being burnt in all of the face, expelled from lands, massacred in mass, the world goes dark, and the question mark becomes punctuated. And Judaism retreats into a stance of an overdose of the Yerushalayim. We can't understand our world. It's just too nightmarish. It's too confusing. Why? It's been 1,700 years. Why? Who knows? the next capital. next you know, try, he failed, but not even try. So there's a stress on Yerushalayim at the expense of Avas Hashem. And those two traits, of course, are not just intellectual, how you do God, but they also psychically emotions. One is much more optimistic and familiar and intimate. God one is much more distant and accepting of authority. Hasidus tries to restore that. 
And when people talk about chasidus and simcha, they don't just mean artificial spontaneity induced by liquor, that's all we have. It's an attempt to create a relationship with Hashem, and of course a new modality. It's optimistic, it's familiar, that restores that sense. And in the darkest night, if you look carefully, you'll see order, the chaos, you'll see method to the madness, you'll see glimmers of hope. There'll be reason, not just looking in the mirror and introducing false optimism, self-help, and all beautiful, and all proud. It's a sense of trying to locate sources and trigger points for Simcha and for Avastasha. And that's where you've seen this extreme form where the relationship and the hierarchy shifts. So the old joke goes that the chassid and the non-chassid met. And the real jokes in life are the jokes that are told by both sides of the joke when you go around. Then you know it's a real joke. So you can tell the joke and make fun of the chassid if you're a lifebot. You can tell the joke and make fun of the lifebot if you're a chassid. That's what makes it so accurate. So I'll tell it from the chassid standpoint, although I heard it from the lifebot standpoint. I'll tell it from the most of the people are lifebot standpoint. The chassid said, my rep is so great, whatever he wants, I shouldn't perform. So I shouldn't listen to him. And the lifebot says, my rep is so great, whatever Hashem wants, my rep is so great. Hasidus, there's a sense that the Rebbe can dictate that which part of it. Reforming all faiths and the nace. Because he wants it. That's the more involvement. He wants it. And this stems from many, many sources. It isn't just concocted in a vacuum. It starts from the Marmar Kappam. Based on the Hasidim Shmuel. Starts on the 12. Animo shall be Adam, last line. Nemo shall be. Who determines might? He goes there, Zera Mabato. Tzadik can overturn my Zera. Or he eats the Chalokia and the Pasuk that Yitzhak enters. Moshe says, Kuma Shem Yafutsoi Becha. Where Tzadik dictates. It's called, in general loose language, Tzadik goes there, Vashem Mekayim. Tzadik goes there, Vashem Mekayim. There's that familiarity with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You may think it's audacious. But there's a certain, I hope I get this right, there's a certain enfeeblement in submitting to God's will. It's easy not to deserve, because then there's no expectation. And to always pray and ask from the point of non-deservedness, so that I'm not challenged. But what if, when I ask my wife to pass the salt at the dinner table, I don't, I'm not enfeebled, and I don't tell please pass the salt, because I, I deserve it, because she and I, or a team, and I work for her, she works for me, and I have every right to, not make demands, but just be frontal about that, because it's all. My, my Zadie, who's an energy number, my mom's Zadie, tell me that every time in the Holocaust, and I know that I visit, every time in the Holocaust, whenever he's at that stage, it's about to be captured by the Nazis, and the beautiful stages, and the passport arrives, and the money arrives, and showing us all the stories. He always told the Kurdish Bible, I do your business, and I expect you to take care of my business. But are we prepared to place ourselves into that position because it's empowering and demanding because it carries expectations? In a certain way, it's not less firm, it's more firm. You have a religion with a Baruch which is in demands because you've earned it. You're 
behavior warrants it. So, for example, let's read a very famous, famous Kaddish. I'm about to add a very useful Richard Mondial. Very famous Kaddish. It's been applied to music. It's been sung in many concerts. It's a very famous Kaddish. But get ready. It's not a Kaddish any of you have seen before. And you may find it very strange. Source 15. Tzafra Tovah L'Charabon Good morning, Hashem. He said this one Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashem. He started the Kaddish. How are you? What's up? Ani, Levi Yitzchak, Ben Sarami Bardichev. Masi Alecha, Bedin Tara, Bitzad Yisrael, I'm here to litigate you. It's Rosh Hashanah. I'm the lawyer. You're the defendant. You're on trial. And I'm litigating you on behalf of the Jewish people. Malachai Yitzchak, Yisrael, why are you messing with us? All you do is command us. Look at all the people in this world. Persians, Babylonians, the Romans. What do the Russians say? All day they worry about their Caesar. What do the Germans say? They worry about their monarch. What do the English? They worry about their monarchy. They don't have to worry about it. I don't worry about you. Because I worry about you, a little kickback here. I need never use the time to get you on there. Show me some love. Lord, this is me, I'm not moving. Actually, I can't until Mashiach comes. Actually, self That's not supplication, begging, pleading. That's demanding, but it's not a demand that's out of context. I like to call it desirable insolence, desirable chutzpah. Because that shows intimacy. And that shows a relationship. Yes. Not entirely on And it radically, what this all concludes, it radically alters the world. It reinvigorates a whole voice of tefillah. Our go-to place of tefillah, the Hashem that stuck of one of those is Manu Manu Bachayinu, Afor Vaifa, Rima Lutolea, we're terrible. So let me tell you one year, I believe he's Hagavin, he's Dabin Mila for the other very famous chasm. Sun setting, you get the tension, and he stops. Five seconds pass. I'm in it. One's looking, no clouds, I'm looking outside. Ten minutes. Stand there. Fifteen minutes. It's Shain Shkia. And he screams. He finishes me. Like that. So they all gather in the courtyard after a young kid, and say, Rebbe, what happened? Said, I was davening and I saw on Shemayim that there was a great kitra. All my tefillahs were being blunted. They weren't kind of for per, per purpose. I said, I don't know, I'll say something else. Vocal insult. I just was quiet. I was waiting. I was thinking. I was trying to find a strategy. And I saw the clock ticking down. And then I remembered a trick that myself and my sisters used to play on my mother. What was the trick? My mother had a candy closet. She kept locked. You open and allocate candies based on merit. When my sisters and I really wanted candy, 
we were all gathered outside of the candy closet, and one of us would blurt out a bracha, Baruch Atah, Shachom Yevit Varo, that our mother would have to give us candy, so it shouldn't be a bracha with Atah. I figured I'd play the same trick with HaKadosh Baruch. I'll make a bracha and say, Baruch Atah Shem, Melech Malchus V'Solech Lachon, and I'll say the shame of Malchus that you forgive the Jewish people. Oh, now you have to forgive us because it will be a bracha with Atah left. Honestly, it can't be over in this of Rachel I say, I'm done with you. play tricks on you. Are you playing your mother? If you're a chassan, I say, I'm For Jewish people in particular. Now, let me take you, Jennifer, into the white world. Seven Arch Paskins, you should dive them like this. You can evidently run. Some people dive them as such. To be quite honest, I don't think you should follow the children. Right? I don't think you should legislate posture. And also, because there are many different modalities. Uncomfortable, is that the. Shulchan or some children said, Mamish Allah, and then how you tie your shoes in the morning. There's a big cabal, you want to. Let me tell you how the boys dive in my kids' high school. This is not Melvin J. Brown, maybe it is. But you've seen it. This is how they got Oh, I'll have you seen this? This Right? The flinging. That's a posture that reflects a certain demand, a certain yelling, grabbing, almost grabbing up her spark, which has its sources, like how much does Spanish and look up, and she's looking at the neck. We now live in a world, we, in Israel, in which, if anything, there's an overdose of Abbas Hashem at the expense of Yerushalayim. Because Shirashir is now open. The book of history is now counting. The history is advancing. We're partners with Hashem. And we won this war. And we captured this area. And we're now in Yerushalayim. And, and I worry in my community about the restoration of Yerushalayim. But that's where us and the world of Hasidahs overlap because they restored your opposition and we're living with a deep intoxication. There are many 30-year-old Israelis who are not religious today because in 2006, when we disengaged from Aza, the leading national religious rabbis got up and said three words. Hayo, lo tiyeh. It won't happen. I guarantee you God won't let it happen, which to me is shocking. Seven years after the Holocaust, the private will allow six million Jews to be killed if they allow six to eight thousand Jews to be resettled by their own government. But what happens if you're a fifteen year old kid and your rabbi is telling you won't happen and you wake up the next day and it happens? So it's a ter- that's a terrible crisis we're facing. But it comes from the sense that we feel very confident that we know exactly. God's plans for us, and we can bank on it and guarantee it. I'll say, of course, the extreme. Let's blow up the temple now and invite 200 million Arabs to invade because God will intervene. So why not just pull them into the ring? And of course, it's off. And I look at the Haredi world, and of course, for them it's easy because they haven't tasted redemption yet. They're still living in 1950. So they're still living near Shalai. So then that intimacy. That recognition, that partnership, that I feel so deeply, and I'm proud to feel, and I love, I feel the closest I can I can't imagine my grandparents ever tasted. 
the calibration that we're struggling with. But Hasidus restored it. And it's in our world, we certainly think, I imagine that a healthy balance. I think in Eretz Yisrael there are danger signs. Even during 2006, when the Haredim finally woke up two days before the protest, the tone of the protest was very different. The letters began by, who are we to know God's will? Basically, the serpent from the and the serpent from the hill. You have to ask, oh, you know, God, oh, it's not, probably, yeah, we doubt that God is far from the hill. And from our community, what's coming in, happening, I've heard a spark from the green, Armageddon's right around the corner, it's not going to happen. I know where it comes from. I'm proud that we've introduced that emotion back into our religion of the It's our challenge in our world to try to restore some of that equilibrium. Those are the three alternatives. Number one, activist redemption. Number two, inclusion of the other, or the former. Number three, the restoration of that equilibrium between distance and intimacy, love and fear, mystery, comprehension. Hasidus, very, very deep set of ideas, in my opinion, rescue jury from disastrous possibilities. And to the degree that we can see past the externals and the visuals, sometimes we're either firing us, or in some cases, and even not just firing us, I mean, sometimes you have to grade people on a bell curve. You know, when I'm in places, then very often I see the tumult that takes place with the hats and the events around and stuff. They live in a different world where space is different. You know, like, live in a world where you have a lot of space. Look at the show, respect each other's space. And, and if you have know, 13 people growing up in a two-bedroom apartment, your space dimensions are different. I remember once asking about your woman, tell me your most cherished memory from 770 in Rosh I remember having my sheep pushed against the window for five straight hours. <laughs> and she said it was such reverence. I hope it doesn't occur to KMS, but I assume you wouldn't tolerate it. But sometimes we just try to typecast people based on our own set of references rather than accepting them based on their frameworks and their yardsticks. And it's a very deep set of ideas. And I think, I think, yeah, fine, I see it's something like this, you know, I see this is certainly starting to infiltrate our community. I think it's going to infiltrate here. There's a certain, someone told me, I don't know, I'm not part of that word, they didn't like word. Someone big, someone important, got out a few weeks ago, I don't know whom, said something to the equivalent of the Musser era has ended. 200 years after it began, Musser is no longer relevant. It's not going to create moral rectitude. Now we need Pnimia Satara. That's a code word for Sidus. So evidently, in that world, it's like labor and fall and battle, evidently, they have now realized that we need what they're called Pnimia Satara. This is a very deep world, and we can appreciate it. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.